You know, my presence on the platform today is an example of God's planning and God's timing. When we selected the date that I, we set out our calendar, when the three of us divide up the preaching roles, uh, we actually had a different series in mind. It's a little bit fluid as time goes on. And when we landed here and we found out on this date we'd be talking about this topic and we'd be having trees would be involved, well, the fact that I would be here talking about a day when we are thinking about aspen trees is, is God's timing. Because I'm a hiker, and I hike every week as a spiritual discipline. And the guys knew that, the guys who do the videos knew that I especially love Aspen. So they asked me for my favorite spot. You just saw my favorite spot. I directed them to that site, and they went up and did the filming. And I have to admit that, 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 that there's something about hiking among Aspen that just grabs me every single time. You know, I start uh, every one of my walks with God. My, this is what I do this for. This is prayer time. I start each time with two Bible verses. The first uh, is Jeremiah 6.16. It, uh, it says, Stand at the road and look and ask for the ancient path where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. I'm looking for a good path to walk in so I can find rest for my soul. That's the purpose of these outings. But there's another verse I've been adding just in the last uh, few, couple of years, actually. This verse comes from the Psalms. It says, Make known to me the path of life, for in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's something especially appropriate about an aspen trail, in my mind, being called a path of life. Because although Rocky just told you on the video all the reasons why, sort of scientifically, why aspen trees are a good choice to talk about life-giving, why the root system is really all one tree, and why the, the trees that sprout are really one organism and they're giving life to each other. I, I get all that, and it's appropriate. But subjectively speaking, something happens in my heart when I hike among aspen. Something happens in me that is powerful and spiritual when I go into places like you see there. And that's why it's very appropriate that we today be thinking about life-giving and using an aspen tree as an example. Ron mentioned that we are at the end of a four-week series. And I want us to realize that these four characteristics that, that he mentioned, four traits that we see in Jesus, we see in his word, we want to see in our lives more and more, they really are connected in a, in a unique kind of way. Here are the four. If you were here a few weeks ago, you know we started with the word humble. Ron unpacked that. We want to be humble people. We want to know what humility is. We want to see it among us. We want to follow the example of Christ, as Philippians 2 says. Consider the needs of others as more important than our own. The second week, we talked about being thirsty. And John unpacked that for us and talked about how it's important that we, we hunger and thirst after God and His Word and His righteousness. And that thirst can be quenched. But we want to be those kinds of people, yearning for Him and for His ways. Then last week, if you were here, you heard Ron unpack the idea of peace-seeking. He pointed out that Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. He made peace between us and God. Only He could have done that. And He turns to us and says, Blessed are the peacemakers. So we want to be peace-seeking kinds of people. And when we live out these other three, something else happens automatically. When we are humble and consider the needs of others as more important than ourselves, we want to impact their life. We want to be life givers. When we are thirsty and find that thirst quenched in Jesus himself, 
then we naturally want to turn to others and say, you know what, you need him like I do. Let me help you find him. I love the old definition of evangelism that goes like this. Sharing our faith with others is really just boils down to this. One hungry beggar telling another hungry beggar where to find bread. Pretty simple definition, but we complicate it an awful lot. That's really what it is. In our terminology, let's tweak it a little bit. What if it were one thirsty beggar telling another thirsty beggar where to find water? See, when we have our thirst quenched, then we turn around. Who else needs this? It's automatic. And then when we find our own peace with God and we become people who who relish the peace between us and our Creator, of course we become peacemakers. and We want to help them understand how they can be right with their Creator. And all of these result in us becoming life-giving kinds of people. People who look around us and say, how can I impact in Christ's name for the sake of his kingdom, how can I impact the people around me? People close to me, people far away, it doesn't really matter. I want to be a life-giving person. And that, of course, is the focus of our final Sunday in the four. Let's pray about that. Lord, would you please look into our hearts today, point out to us those things that might be in the way of us being these kinds of people? Would you transform us so we can be those people? And would you speak right now? because your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. You know, Ron mentioned last week, and I've already mentioned, that Jesus was the example of peace-seeking and peace-making. And we follow in his footsteps. In a similar way, we have another model before us today. And before we talk about becoming life-givers, we have to recognize that Jesus is really, really good at that. Turn to John chapter 10, if you would, in your Bibles. In John 10, we've got a beautiful passage full of all this wonderful imagery that we've actually talked quite a bit about in the last few months. In this passage, Jesus is describing his relationship with his people as that of a shepherd with a flock. And this is the famous Good Shepherd passage. And in verses 1 through 9, there's a variety of images that he uses uh, to teach us about that relationship that he has with us. First of all, he says the sheep... He knows his sheep by name, and he calls them. So he knows us, and he calls us. He guides his sheep, he says. His sheep follow him because they know his voice. Like a shepherd connected well to his flock, and because the sheep are secure in his presence, in the same way Jesus says, I know my people. And he says, my people know me. They know my voice. And when I call to them, they follow, but they flee from strangers. And thieves, they don't recognize the stranger's voice, he says in verses 1 through 9. In fact, they, they run away because they don't trust him. And, and the, the shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus, he knows that the flock is in danger because there are thieves out there. There are predators. There are problems. And so a big job of a shepherd is to be a protector of the flock. And then we get to the passage we're looking at right now, starting in verse 10. The thief we already mentioned, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus makes it clear here that he came with a specific purpose in mind, several of them, in fact, and he spells out that purpose in this passage. We need to avoid the idea that Jesus woke up one day in heaven and said, I think I'll go to earth today. I got nothing else to do. I'll go hang out with people for a while and see what happens. No, no, no. This was all strategic. 
This was all planned before the creation even happened. God had this whole thing in mind, and he knew he himself was going to come to earth in human form in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and he had a purpose in coming. He was coming to give life. And I don't want us to minimize the challenge he was facing. Because if we minimize the challenge, then we minimize the miracle of him finding a way to accomplish it. I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that the people that he came to give life to are just spiritually sick, are just spiritually disadvantaged, that the human race is just spiritually disabled and we need a little bit of help from outside to get where we need to be. Because if that is the only problem, if if our problem is that, that we are spiritually sick, then all Jesus did was make us better. And a doctor can do that, right? Happens all the time. How, How often were you sick in the last year and you're better now? Okay, Vitamins can do that. A good breakfast can do that, all right? Getting better is not miraculous. And if we have the idea in our minds that when it comes to us and God, we've just got this problem and we're mostly okay and Jesus helps us get the rest of the way to where we need to be, then all he did was help us get to where we might have had trouble getting on our own. And that minimizes the amazing miracle because Scripture doesn't allow us to describe ourselves as spiritually ill. It says we're spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter 2 doesn't, doesn't hide the fact when Paul says you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. You don't have a little problem. You're dead. Dead people aren't disabled. Dead people aren't sick. Dead people aren't disadvantaged. Dead people are dead and helpless to do anything about it. And Jesus came, guess what, to give life to dead people. He came that they might have life Not just a better life, but have life in the first place. Because without him, we don't have that life. And I don't want us to to jump through that too quickly. I want us to marvel at the reality that only Jesus gives life to dead people. Nobody else can do that. No one else had ever tried. Usually when someone's dead, everybody gives up. It's done. But not so Jesus. He made that clear in the Gospels. We see him as the ultimate life giver in the Gospels. In one story, he, he's coming into a town and he stumbles across, looks like an accident to his disciples, but he knew what he was doing, stumbles across a funeral procession. And the, the, the passage tells us that it was a widow who had already lost her husband burying her only son. And that woman is now facing a life of solitude. And in that day... Without a whole lot of help available, a life of misery. And the passage says, Jesus' heart went out to her. I'm so glad that part was in there. It's not just, Jesus has a project, he has a mission, he's going to check a box. Okay, today I raised the guy from the dead. No, his heart went out to the woman who was suffering. I'm so glad that part's included. I spoke at a funeral yesterday. I actually speak at, at funerals fairly often. And to be able to say that, To be able to say to a group of grieving people, your pain matters. Your pain matters to Jesus. He's stronger than death, and and he proved it. But most of all, his heart goes out to you. His heart went out to this woman. And a lot of people in that funeral procession, no doubt, were grieving and were sorry for this lady. What a terrible thing to happen. Who wouldn't be gripped by that? The difference between Jesus and them was Jesus could do something about it. And so on that day... He decided death will not win this one. Death will not take this man. 
And so Jesus, in an act of power and compassion, raised this guy from the dead. And that family and those people knew he was the life giver. Something similar happened when there was a a synagogue official whose only daughter, it says, was sick. And he was scared. He was miserable. He, He came to Jesus and said, will you please come? I know you're powerful. I've heard your story. I know what you can do. Please come and heal my daughter. And Jesus says, okay, let's go. And on the way, they get word, sorry, she's dead. And everybody's saying, it's too late. Well, it's too late for most people. It wasn't too late for Jesus. And he wanted them to know that. So although the official said, no need to go any further, my daughter's dead, Jesus said, oh, I know that, but I'm not done yet. So he went to her house, raised this little girl from the dead, gave her back to her family, who saw Jesus as the ultimate life giver. And then, of course, the most famous resurrection story in the Gospels, the one we talk about quite a bit, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In that case, we can, it's clear that Jesus delayed coming, intentionally making it too late in the eyes of everybody else because he got word that Lazarus was sick and he stayed where he was. And then he went and he got there and, yes, it was too late for everybody but him. And as he interacted with the grieving sisters, Mary and Martha, as he saw the weeping people around him, he decided once again, death is not going to win this one. And so he did something only Jesus could do. Who else but Jesus would dare to stand in front of a tomb in which is a man who's been dead for four days. Everybody around knew he was dead. They buried him. And here's Jesus calling out to a dead man. Come forth. And in that moment, because Jesus is the life giver, the heart that had stopped beating began beating. And the lungs that had stopped breathing began breathing. And the eyes that had gone blind opened, and he stepped out of that tomb and became proof of Jesus being the life giver and became the most famous resurrected man in town for a few months. Because a few months later, Jesus did it again. Not for somebody else, for himself. Because after he died, and after he was buried, and after everyone thought it was too late, his heart began beating, and his lungs began breathing, and his eyes opened, and he rose again, never to die again. Friends, Jesus is the ultimate life giver. He came to give life to dead people, and we have to recognize that only he could do that. Now, the kind of life he gives, we have a lot of words in the Bible to describe it. Maybe the most common one is the word eternal. And when we think about eternal life, uh, we don't always reflect on both sides to it because eternal refers to both the quantity and the quality of the life Jesus gives. We go immediately to quantity. We tend to think right away eternal life is synonymous with everlasting life because we see that in the Bible. God so loved the world That he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. So we think about life as, eternal life as the quantity of life, and it's true. But that's not all it means. It also refers to the quality of life. It refers to the kind of life, not just the length of life. It's a life that is to the full. John 10, the verse we already looked at, said that. I I came to give them life. I came to give them a full life. Some of your Bibles use the word abundant. 
the abundant life that Jesus Christ offers. That means it's not, it's not a life you can get anywhere else. It's not the same kind of life you had before you came to know him. And it's not just a life that never ends. It's a life that is transformed and is different. And boy, am I glad that's true. Because what if all he did was give long-lasting life or everlasting life, but he didn't change the quality? Can you imagine living forever a miserable life? Who would, who would choose that? Can you imagine Hitler living forever? Can you imagine the damage that could be done if, if he only gave length and didn't change kind? So he gives an abundant life, an overflowing life, a life full of stuff that only could come from him. Yes, a life full of humility, a life full of quenched thirst, a life full of peace with God and with others, a life full of the, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Who wouldn't like <laughs> that kind of life? A life full of forgiveness, received and given. A life full of hope. Who gives better hope than the one who's stronger than death? A life full of rest. We can rest because he's done all that is needed. And according to John 17, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he describes this life and he said it's more than just a length of days. It's knowing someone. It's knowing God himself. In John 17, he prays to, to the Father. And, he, and in the midst of this prayer, he defines eternal life this way. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. What an amazing life to be right with God, to walk with God, to know God, to interact with God, to love God and know you're loved by God. What an amazing quality of life this Jesus makes available to us. So friends, we, we need to ask ourselves as we stand amazed at this, this offer of Jesus, this everlasting and equality of life, how are we doing at receiving it and living it? Well, if you've already bowed the knee to Jesus and you've made him your Lord and Savior, then get ready for this. Your eternal life has already begun. The quantity has started. Oh, we tend to think eternal life starts after I die. No. Do you know God now? Well, that's eternal life. <laughs> the Bible says you won't, it's not that you will have life if you have Jesus. You do have eternal life. So in terms of quantity, it's already begun. Death is going to change it. Death will be a transition to a, a new way to live it. But it's already started in terms of quantity. In terms of quality, how's that going? How's that working? How well are you embracing the new kind of life? How well are you cooperating with the Holy Spirit so that life becomes yours? I, I, I recently had a birthday. I turned 59. You may applaud. Thank you. Thank you very much. No, 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 please. Don't overdo that, please. I, I wish I could write a birthday card to myself. Uh, or to anyone else, uh, I, if I could, I would reword something I heard several years ago. It would go something like this. The front of the card would say, no way you're 59. You have the face of a 25-year-old. You open the inside and it would say, but you should take better care of it because you're wrinkling it. <laughs> okay? Anybody else wrinkling their 25-year-old face? Am I alone? All right. Yeah, there's a lot of us. Okay? It's true that we, over time, our faces and our bodies become something different than they were a long time ago. 
And, and that's normal and that's natural, but it's kind of too bad when we take the life Jesus provides and we wrinkle it by not embracing it the way he calls us to. Our life should be full of forgiveness, given and received. And sometimes it's full of bitterness because we refuse. Our life should be full of joy because that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. And it's full of darkness because we focus our minds on things that aren't true of God or are or, or just depressing thoughts about ourselves. And we refuse the picture of God the Scripture gives us. It's possible for us to go on living an inferior quality of life, even though Jesus has given us eternal life. So friends, we have to ask ourselves, what is there in me that reflects already the person Jesus wants me to be? What is there in my life that already identifies me as a follower of Jesus and a child of God, a prince or princess in the kingdom of God? In short, what is there about me that bears the fragrance of heaven? What is there in my life that identifies me as someone who knows the God of the universe and in whom that God is working? Does my home life bear the fragrance of heaven? Does my work life, my school life, identify me as a prince or princess in God's kingdom? Does my social media life, ouch, bear the fragrance of heaven? Or is it falling short? Friends, they can be hard questions, but they're questions we must ask. Because before we can be life givers, we have to be life receivers. We have to be life livers. And that qualifies us to take on the mission that Jesus came to establish. It qualifies us to step into his shoes in the same way we do as peace seekers. We, as life givers, say, Jesus, you're my example, and I'm going to follow you. And I want to be a life giver to people around me. I follow a pastor named Timothy Keller on Twitter. He's a well-known writer and pastor in New York City. Here's what he said this last week. It's good timing for us. When we realize that he sacrificed to give us life, we will start to say, how can I sacrifice to give other people life? When we realize how far Jesus went to be a life giver to us, it's natural to say, Lord, for whom can I play a similar role? We can't change the quantity of people's life. That's between them and God. We can share the gospel with them, and that could create that everlasting life. But mainly, we can impact the quality of their life and become life givers like Jesus. Timothy Keller summarized what the Apostle John said in 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we, our turn, ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? A concrete example of life giving. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. To let the life-giving love of God, already expressed to us, flow from us to others. In the same way that the water that John talked about, that, that quenches our thirst, becomes a spring of living water flowing out from us to others. The same principle applies. And this verse seems to limit it to other Christians, but let's not assume that that was meant to be limiting, because Galatians 6 tells us this. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. 
especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Yes, there is a special connection and relationship with those who share our faith, but boy, we don't limit our life-giving love to those people. This verse won't let us. So we need to become, as we follow in the footsteps of the life-giver, we need to become life-givers. How are we doing at that? Well, friends, can, can I tell you some stories? I love stories. Oh, thank you. I love stories. And, and, and one of my frustrations here for several of us on staff is we get to know all this cool stuff that God is doing through life-giving people, and we don't get that many opportunities to share examples of it. Let me, let me show you a couple of them. Uh, going back to the Goodwin Fire just a few months ago here in our town, uh, you might remember we mobilized to help the evacuees, and that was wonderful, but there was a special step taken by a woman in our church who was a nurse who has a connection to firefighters, and a captain mentioned to her that the firefighters didn't have the proper first aid kits to help themselves and each other if they got hurt in the line of duty. They would be pretty much left on their own. And this fire captain said to this nurse, can you help with this? And she's a heights attender. She came to Colby, the head of our hands and feet ministry, said, Colby, what can we do? And Colby found some, some budget for it, provided these, purchased these first aid kits, uh, they decided to write a letter not from Heights, but from the Christian community of Prescott to bless these firefighters. And this nurse named Wendy, Wendy Stokes is her name, wrote this letter that accompanied every kit that went to every firefighter. I'm just going to read parts of it. You are treasured by us. You are valued and prayed for. Be blessed, be safe, know that you matter to us. May you have the humble strength to lead well, a commitment to excellence, the ability to listen well and forgive fully, especially yourself. May you utilize each other's strengths and compensate for each other's weaknesses. May there be peace in your midst and strength in your unity. God speed. God protect you. God comfort you. God bless you. God restore you. God keep your loved ones. We are grateful to God for you. Amen. Is that a wonderful letter? This is, can you imagine receiving this letter? The life-giving words and the life-giving act that is, as a gesture that just showed care and concern and love. Imagine, by the way, the firefighters who received these kits were hot shots. Very significant in the history of our town. Friends, this is one example of life-giving. A month ago, another example, I was with a group in the library downtown Prescott, uh, as the first launch event for an event that's going to come next February in this room, uh, working with Focus on the Family from Colorado Springs, they sent a representative to start this ministry. We're going to hold what's called a Wait No More conference, mobilizing churches in our town and all over northern Arizona for foster care to come alongside kids and families that need help. And this is something obviously very important to Heights. It's something we have an ongoing ministry. This, I hope, will take this to a whole new level. And we are welcoming churches from all over northern Arizona to come and hear how Christians can be life givers to families and to children. So those folks will know, oh, these people who follow Jesus, yeah, man, they changed my life. They gave me a home. They helped care for my kid when I was in a rough patch. Those people are life givers. Friends, I also have a an article here from USA Today, dated September 10th. The headline says this, Faith groups provide the bulk of disaster recovery in coordination with FEMA. 
It's an analysis of the after effects of the hurricanes that hit Houston and Florida. And it points out that faith-based groups are by far the most involved all over the country to step in to come alongside needy people. The ones mentioned in this article include the uh, Seventh-day Adventists, the United Methodist Committee on Relief, a group called Convoy of Hope, a Christian organization, and Samaritan's Purse, with whom we have worked several times along, along the, the years, uh, headed by Franklin Graham, of course. This group has already responded to 20 disasters all over the nation this year, and actually all over the world. They show up in Houston and Florida, I'm sure, I never knew this until I read this article. They show up with a two-story tall trailer full of chainsaws to cut up fallen trees, full of tarps to cover roofs that have holes in them, full of all kinds of practical ways to help families who are reeling because their house was destroyed or damaged. And on each team is a designated listener whose only role is to sit down with the homeowner and say, tell me your story. You matter. I want to hear what you have to say, and I want to pray with you. Is that amazing? Life giving to these people. We, we tried to organize and we still want to organize some kind of practical help from here for the hurricane victims, which now number many, 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 as you know. And this last week, Samaritan's Purse, we discovered, began declining, invita- declining applications because so many Christians around the country were applying to go that they had no room for them all. <laughs> Woo, goosebumps. Now, that doesn't mean all the problems are, uh, are solved, but it means in their case, they were overwhelmed by so many people saying, how can we help? We want to be life givers. Now, friends, those are very high-profile, national-level kinds of issues or local level, but they don't all have to be that way. You individually, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your circle, you can be that same kind of life giver because... Sometimes it's the simple gestures that matter the most. It's the, it's the offer to come by and bring a meal when you know a baby was just born down the street. It's the offer to sit down with a, with a co-worker when you find out that their mother just passed away. It's, it's the offer to be a part of their lives in powerful, life-giving ways. So you're saying to them, you matter. You matter to me because you matter to the God I serve. My Jesus gave life to me sacrificing himself, and I'm glad to sacrifice myself for you. Sometimes they're big headline stories. Sometimes they're very simple. Last service, a man came up to me. We're sitting right here, and he said, Pastor, uh, is there any way we can pray for a man I just met? Uh, He's in kidney failure. He's been given six months to live. He's not going to make it on the donor list. Is there anything we can do for him? And we arranged details, and he said, oh, by the way, we've already had people offer kidneys to this man. And I said, well, is this, are these people who know him? He said, oh, no. The lady I was sitting next to met him. He sat behind us in the 1030 service. And when she heard his story, she said, I'll give you a kidney. Wow. Life giving. Can we wake up in the morning and not necessarily say, what organ can I donate? <laughs> All right. Although that might come, who knows. But to wake up in the morning, every morning, why not? And say, Lord, to whom can I give life today? To whom can my words represent you? To whom can I sacrifice myself so that they can receive something? To whom can I say, by my words and by my actions, Jesus gave me life, and I want to impact yours. For whom can we be life-giving people? 
I loved Ron's description, I heard it many years ago, of his father. First time I heard him talk about his dad. I mean, you might have heard him mention this. He said uh, he was a, a young guy trying to figure out this Christian stuff, trying to figure out Jesus. And all of a sudden, this man comes into his life. And he was Jesus with skin on. That's how Ron describes this guy. Because he embodied the love and the encouragement and the hope that Jesus provides. And so into this family, this man comes. And to this young guy, whom we all love and benefit from on a regular basis, he became Jesus with skin on. (laughs) Friends, to whom can you be, to whom can I be, Jesus with skin on? To whom can we, tomorrow, next day, the day after, to whom can we represent the life-giving love of God? We won't know until we ask. We won't know until we make it a focus of our prayer life. And as we prepare to see what God wants us to do in the future, we talk about vision, to figure out who God wants us to be. And believe me, in a world so full of death, in a world where death is filling our computer screens and our TV screens and our newspapers, the death sometimes caused by a natural disaster, but way too often caused by hatred, caused by crime, caused by sin. As people reel from the pain, sometimes national, sometimes specific to their family, as they realize what a death-filled world this is, what will God do with life givers? I have no idea, but I can't wait to find out. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us life. Thank you for being the ultimate life giver. Thank you for putting us in places where we can represent you and we can be you with skin on for others. Lord, would you make us those people? Would you give us the joy of seeing life given to others? Seeing people turn to you and find eternal life? Would you give us the joy of impacting others in your name? Would you make us a church where this describes us so that we can have the joy of seeing you work through us in ways for which you will get all the glory? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.